Hey, what's going on, CNFers? This is the hashtag CNF Podcast, a conversation I have with writers, reporters, authors, and documentary filmmakers about creating works of nonfiction. And here, Bryn Jonathan Butler comes back for round two to talk about his memoir, The Domino Diaries, now out in paperback. So go buy it, and it's about his time in Cuba. It is an all-Cuban episode, so I hope you brought your salsa shoes, because this is a good one. And uh, Bryn Jonathan Butler, he brings it every time, just a wonderful mind. He's going to offer some tremendous insights, and it's just a, it's kind of fun just to be with him as he just thinks through things and um, just makes you think because he's just such an inquisitive person and a thoughtful person in that sense. A couple matters of business. Uh, Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast or I ask you to. It certainly helps. Um, Definitely rate it. Uh, But I'm not going to be one of those people that says only rate it if you're only going to give it five or four stars. If you think it's a one-star podcast and you're going to take the time to do it, by all means, give me one lousy star. I'm going to be mad at first, but it can only make me better in the long term, right? So, go ahead. One star, two stars. I'm used to it. I've got thick skin. In any case, we'll have fun with it. Maybe we'll even have a segment reading the one-star reviews. But, uh, but in any case, one star is fine. Whatever. Do what you got to do. Um, also, I have a newsletter at brendanomero.com. It is a monthly newsletter. So at most, you will receive 12 over the course of the year instead of 52. Um, And the way I go, and sometimes the way I'm sort of not consistent with it, you may get lucky and only have 10 or 11. So look at that. Uh, So go ahead and do that. And that's about it. Enjoy episode 24 of the Hashtag CNF podcast as Bryn Jonathan Butler strikes back. Thank you. I just want to really... commend you on a job well done with this book this was like a a ton of fun for me to read and um i found myself like always when i had to put it down for whatever reason like i always found myself wanting to like run back to it which doesn't happen very often you know maybe 10 percent of the books i read every year it feels like that and uh yours was definitely one of them so like job well done man i'm really glad you liked it so so i wonder as as with um Anything that's like sort of memoir driven, especially people who are reporters and such, I I often wonder like what compelled you to write this book specifically a, a memoir of your time in Cuba. I think trying to make sense of a very complicated place, and also the fact that I I had just moved to New York uh, not long before I I sort of started the book. So it was another way of kind of making sense of a new life and a new chapter in the United States because the book concludes with what I thought was the last time I'd ever be able to go back. So <clears throat> it, was a, it was interesting to kind of turn the page to a new existence, acclimating to New York and, and being in a new country while looking back on, you know, my 20s, you know, like closing the door on a decade. So it's, it's rare that you have an opportunity to do that and, and be able to support yourself doing it at the same time. So mm-hmm. I felt very lucky to, to be able to, I, I don't know, it wasn't therapy, but, you know, it was just very much on my mind. Yeah, did you um, struggle at all with the idea of writing memoir or was this something that kind of came naturally for you? Um... Yeah, I don't particularly like being this, you know, this on stage, you know, the spotlight on me. I much prefer watching and observing. Um, but I also recognize that the easiest way for readers to to be able to uh, connect to Cuba would probably be through through me as somebody who is an outsider and new to it, and. I think coming at it very quickly where all my preconceptions were sort of detonated by the reality, I think that's always an interesting place to start where you're not looking for answers, you're just exploring a lot of questions. And those are, those are very often my favorite books to read where it is nonfiction. So um, there was, you know, it was kind of unavoid, unavoidable. I wasn't going to write it 
as as a history book. You know, I did do a biography of a boxer, but it was very difficult to tell his story before I did the memoir without including the journey to find out about him, which itself becomes almost half the story in a country like Cuba where these stories are forbidden to be told. Yeah, and uh, the the sort of central question that you like to explore in the in this book is that um the uh the 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 choice that athletes or people make between staying staying in Cuba and defecting and and uh that that sort of tug of war um within within their minds about seeking the millions that they may get in America versus staying home and having the praise instead of money, you have the praise of the millions of fans and Cuba and that adulation is its own form of currency. And I wonder like how, what was it like for you to explore that question throughout the book and throughout the whole decade that you spent time in Cuba? Yeah. And I, I think just, just to add on to that also living for principles that are very difficult in a world that world that had largely, I don't know if they discredited those principles, but I mean, most of the world is is bought and sold. I mean, in capitalism, everything is a commodity. Everything, even rejecting capitalism, can be commodified as an angle which is incorporated in capitalism. You know, Che Guevara is omnipresent on T-shirts that are bought mm-hmm. and sold. Which, <laughs> so, I I liked that to stay or to go. Just explored why we do anything. You know, people are selling themselves out with their work here in New York every day. I mean, people are not spending enough time with their family. They're not prioritizing things that they look back on with regret. Um, In Cuba, yes, there was the currency of the adulation of the people, um, but there was also a recognition that prior to the revolution, um, grandparents, parents were living in extreme poverty and squalor, um, in rampant illiteracy, people dying on the streets from curable diseases, and that change the changes that eradicated illiteracy and and a lot of these metrics for the health of a society with disease and universal health care these didn 't just happen they happened as a result of that revolution, and they felt beholden to that they felt honor bound to be examples of that. Because they'd seen the benefits of it in their own families. I mean, most of these boxers are from the east of Cuba that was the most hard hit prior to Fidel Castro seizing power. So there's that angle as well. And I I think just naturally, I tend to size people up, and maybe it's a bad quality, but just as kind of underdogs or whores. Hmm. And Cuba had that struggle, you know, where in Miami you were considered – a, a, a whore to Fidel Castro, or you were afraid if you stayed. And according to Fidel, if you left, you were called a gusano, a worm. So there was no middle ground with that. And what I discovered pretty pretty early on was that it took enormous courage to stay, and it took enormous courage to leave. So what seemed like a unique position about this issue of to stay or to go is that the decision itself was the victim, rather than which choice you made. And that seemed to be something that allowed me to talk to people across the spectrum of viewpoints and include their point of view and give it equal weight so that the reader would be left to come to their own conclusions. And I thought that was an interesting place to go and and respectful of a reader's intelligence that maybe they'd be on some of the same roller coasters that I was on meeting these people with a different calculus in each situation um, of whether to stay or to go. And also just forces you to examine your own choices about where, you know, there, there are not easy choices. The, the, the decision is not clean. It's messy and it's dirty. And um, with the athletes, it's just a more extreme version of the choice that every Cuban has to make um, with, with just infinitely more money on the table and more stakes in terms of how they're, they're used in that society. So what were your impressions of Cuba before you made your first trip? Uh, my, my first impression was through, through Hemingway with The Old Man in the Sea. That was one of the first books I ever – I think it was the first novel I ever read. And 
I was just struck on the one hand of, of, you know, a simple fisherman in a quiet fishing village, um, struggling, struggling in a, a failed journey. And there was just so much beauty that he was able to find in that. And it seemed, um, allegorical in the sense of Cuba seemed to be the ultimate David versus Goliath in standing up to the most powerful force in, in the world against the United States and the United States values. Um, I've always been interested in people who stand up to a bully and, and the dynamics of that. I, I think a lot of writers I enjoy are, are very much, um, underdogs or losers advocates. Um, I think losers in general have uh, a tremendous amount of self awareness that they're, that's just imposed on them by virtue of losing. You're forced to reflect. Whereas I find most winners, quote unquote, winners are, are pretty oblivious because they're never really confronted with much um, of why they're winning, what their reasons are. It's, it's just, a, it's an interesting uh, observation just that we think of winners requiring the character not to lose but it's it's just so often that that losers have to demonstrate so much character, and we've just seen again and again so many of the people who are wildly successful, their character in the end does get exposed as being highly questionable. So I just saw so much dignity and character in the Cuban people um, in this common struggle that, yeah, it, it seemed impossible that they could ever succeed, and yet there were many successes and there were many things that I explored there, um, you know, everybody's warned about how impoverished it is over there, which is very true in a material sense, but in a social sense, in the sense of community, of relying on your neighbor, of your kids not being afraid to move about in, in Havana. Um, all of those things, they seem to have, you know, a tremendous bounty of human connection and empathy and concern and a sense of social responsibility that I never grew up with and, and I certainly don't live with here in New York where homelessness is, you know, abundant everywhere you go. You're inundated with homelessness and I don't think I've ever seen a homeless person in Havana in 11 years of traveling there. And yet the monetary conditions are very, very difficult also. It's just, it's an interesting thing that uh, when Obama was at the baseball game, in Havana, and I was there, ESPN took photographs off the side of uh, the stadium, um, Latino Americano, saying, meanwhile, here, here's Havana, trying to shame them about the poverty. And many Americans, I think, to their credit, sent photographs on Twitter reflecting the neighborhoods around baseball stadiums across the United States and just abject poverty that surrounds them, including Bristol, Connecticut, the home of ESPN. Um, so it's just it's just always interesting that we can be so critical where we where we look at others, but we're we're often just oblivious to our own situation. We don't look around and, and notice it. And I just found Cuba really forced you to confront a lot of that on a not just a daily basis, but almost a minute to minute basis. <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't expect that. Yeah. And uh, it's funny they you know, you mentioned um you know you you really appreciate them as a people or that as a country for standing up to the bully and how the kids not being afraid to move about and through the first you know quarter of the book we we learned that you know you were you were beat up in school and like it made you very timid and that's what kind of i guess sort kind of ushered you towards the boxing culture i guess as a as it means at first of self-defense but as we later learn when you connect with that first punch it, you don't want to be a fighter anymore you want to learn how to protect people and uh in in what sense did you um just by the fact that you're echoing that standing up to the bully and you know the kids not being afraid to walk around like that must have been a very strong connection you felt dating back to your childhood when you moved to cuba well, it certainly did. And, and let's remember, I mean, being raised in Canada, there's, I don't think there's any animosity towards the United States. I mean, we, look at, we looked at the United States as our big brother, um, the longest unguarded border in the world. Um, I think, you know, you look at the entertainment industry, it's littered with Canadians in a, in a hugely disproportionate number of people who feel that to make it, they have to come to the United States. And 
you don't hear very many of them who come over who are whining about it. Oh God, I'm in the United States. Like, I mean, I think a lot of us had a, a bit of an inferiority complex in Canada with um, the arts being subsidized by the state. You know, there's a feeling of being second rate a little bit to remain in Canada. If you were legit as an artist, you came to the U.S. So I certainly never thought of the United States as a bully. I bought into the rhetoric and the propaganda that everything the United States fought for was good and anybody who opposed it was bad. And, um, you know, some of the first, first times where I heard anything about Cuba was my father talking about being in uh, school as a kid and having to hide under his desk to prepare for the after effects of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, nuclear holocaust and that kind of thing. And I thought, Fidel Castro is responsible for this and the people behind him back him? They must all be crazy. Like, you must be crazy to stand up to the United States. And you get over there and you just learn a little bit about their perspective on things and notice how much more nuanced it is compared to the America's, America's media perception of Cuba, and you just think, this is very strange. This isn't what I expected when they have no free press, that the people are so critical of their own system and also just critical of the propaganda. You know, if, if you're actually reading between the lines and all people um, there, it's like they know the media is full of shit, so immediately they're reading between the lines. And unlike, I think, in the U.S., where... I mean, to this day, I don't know what the percentage is of Americans who think Obama is a Muslim, but it's, at some points it was 30 or 40 yeah. percent, I read. And you just think, well, how can that exist? Like, shouldn't our system be weeding that out in a healthy democracy? And yet, um, I, I just found most Cubans that I met had a, a far more thorough understanding of how the U.S. Congress worked than most Americans I meet here. And... I was just very, very surprised by that and very curious to see America from this different perspective, um, which isn't to say I came away, you know, believing all of it hook, line and sinker, but it was just very interesting to see it from an adversary's perspective. And I, I'm very intrigued by exploring any issue that, that I have a strong emotional response to intellectually from as many different angles as I can to try to learn more about it. And, and again, look, look for questions rather than answers. Um, cause I find that that allows you to have a lot more conversations. If you come at anything from an answer, it's a, it's a fixed point of view. Any judgment just stops a discussion. Um, so I, I found that the, the conversations were a lot more robust there about what, what the United States meant to the, to their lives. And, um, some people were, literally almost killing themselves to try to get over to Miami for, for the American dream. But they had a romanticized view of what that meant. And I think very quickly I had a, a, a tremendously romanticized view of what Cuba meant and stood for um, because they had a lot of things that I, I had never seen growing up in the way that they depended on one another. And the decency and integrity and generosity of the people there when I thought, how can you be generous if you don't have anything to give? But again, that was only true in a material sense. Um, so, so that was that was just very uh, it was just very surprising and and disconcerting. Um, and it also took you know this memoir started you know eleven years after I'd first gone there. So I did have some real time to ruminate and and to explore in books and conversations with a lot of the people who've written the books. Um, and I was just hoping that that would offer something something new and fresh for readers. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I think too when I was reading it early on, I kind of I got the this sense, this undercurrent of um, asking uh, or looking at the the lies that sometimes we or the stories we tell ourselves or the the lies that the our sort of culture and government tells us to kind of like keep us in our little place. Like in America, we're told that the American dream is this possible tangible ideal. And it's, it's sometimes anything, but, and, um, you know, and Alfonso, one of your, one of your friends in Cuba, I believe he passed away. Correct. Yeah. Very quickly. He yeah. Did. <laughs> well, one of the things that you have him, you quoted him saying is quote, uh, much is a lie here, just as it is in America. I think Cubans believe the bullshit less than you. 
Cuban advertising tries to help individuals get over human weakness while American advertising encourage you, encourages you to give into it. And I, I was wondering, like, what thought you gave to the lies we tell ourselves or, in, in some sense, the lies that are told to us to, um, I don't know, maybe just keep us in line or keep the, everyone in lockstep, and so, so to speak. Well, I think that there's this interesting clash between the, like the Dionysian and and what's the other one, the uh, uh, Apollonian. I'm not entirely sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna plead naive. Uh, Well, in the in the sense of we try to we try to come up with rational reasons to object to things that we're opposed to. But most of the, I think, the key decisions that people make, and I think we make it with society, we do it with the stock market, we do it with tons of decisions we make are emotional. They're totally irrational that govern the decisions we make. Like the real rudder we have with decisions is emotional. And so everything in Cuba seemed totally irrational. Um, it seems wildly irrational to want to exist in an anachronistic society which isn't aspiring to all the wonderful material things that you can get with the American dream. You know, having a credit card to buy a lot of stuff that you don't need. And who cares if you're in debt? You know, like you'll figure out a way. But in the meantime, you have the big screen TV and, and on and on and on. In Cuba, you can't have any, any of that. You, you're, you know, technology was the thing that was so limited there and, and – I think the popular view is, my God, how could anybody not want to have Wi-Fi wherever they go and all the Apple products um, and those kind of things because that's what makes life wonderful and, and fast and convenient and all those kind of things. But the flip side to it is if nobody has cell phones there, everybody's committed to spending time with you with their full concentration in a way that doesn't exist here. Um, the social fabric was was much older in terms of how people related. I mean, it's it's what the nostalgia in America is, where we look at sports or we talk about, oh, so-and-so is not doing this for the money, it's for the love of it and everything. In Cuba, you're forced to live that. You're forced to, if you're playing baseball, you live in the neighborhood, you walk to the stadium, you have your gear hung over your shoulder in a duffel bag. Um, you know, ev- everybody can't use money to create distance from other people. Um, If you don't have a phone in your house, you think, my God, it's so tragic not to have a phone. But what it means is that 20 people a day knock on your door to come and see you and to have coffee with you. And they need eggs and you have some extra rum. You have some connection for that. And your uncle has cigars and on and on and on. So survival depends on a network of 50 people Mm. (laughs) within 10 blocks of you. And that just created so much human interaction. And, you know, I'm in a city like Manhattan, which is, you know, such a tremendous high concentration of people. But the feeling of isolation and loneliness here, um, you're on a subway, everybody is nodding into their phones. I mean, nobody is interacting. Or if they are, it's, it's frustration and friction and, and sort of displaced anger. Um, so the... There just seemed to be a lot more patience there and obviously a tremendous amount of frustration too if you want to do a, what should be a 20-minute commute from just outside of town. It would take three hours of waiting for the bus. But it does lead to other things in terms of how human beings relate that I think are meaningful. If you don't have access to Facebook, you actually have to meet people in person. And while you're meeting them, you have to spend time with them and be present. Um, you're not always checking your phone. You you can't check your email. And I noticed the conversations were a lot better, I think, by virtue of the fact that people were present, that technology wasn't so fundamental to people's existences. And I think in our society, progress and the next thing is so vital, but we never are really permitted to ask, like, because we can do something new, should we do it? You know, it's just, it's just always assumed tacitly that it's better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need the next thing and the new thing. And we look at, I wonder often if cell phones, if they, if they do make a link with brain cancer or something like that, will it become just like cigarettes where 
you know, we know all the links of cigarettes with cancer and still 20% of adults, including myself, smoke. I wonder if the same thing would be true with cell phones. I wonder if conclusively there was some way to prove um, all this talk of climate change, if anybody would do anything different, I mean, in terms of the people who deny it. I just think human nature is quite interesting that way in that intellectually we can understand these things, but emotionally we don't want to do anything to change. Hmm. And and Cuba Cuba was the Cuban people were forced to be in a situation that was so stifled from what the rest of the world was, and in many ways they were desperate to to have those changes and to have Wi-Fi and and uh, you know all all the the wonderful material objects and stuff that that make life more convenient, but. There was a real benefit to not having those that, that was interesting to, to have imposed on yourself for periods of time while you were staying there. Yeah, because when you first went down there, the, the Internet as we know it is, was in its nascent stages, and it definitely predated the social media that we know. And then by the time you were done with your sort of this period of time in Cuba, that's when everything started to pick up steam here in terms of uh, the social networking via internet. And uh, what was that like for you that, because you weren't as sort of handcuffed to it the way most of us are now when you move initially moved there. So you could actually, you, there was a certain change that you were undergoing technologically speaking as, uh, as well as, you know, ha going back and forth to Cuba where it, you know, by and large stayed the same. By and large, it did stay the same until until Fidel Castro stepped down in 2006. And then when Raul came to power and made some significant changes with private business and um, allowing more and more Internet usage. I mean, I was just there for Obama's visit at the end of March. There were Wi-Fi hotspots all over Havana. It was hmm. clusters of hundreds of people next to all of those those hotspots at any time of the day. Um, a lot more tourist money was in. Uh, cruise ships were coming in regularly. Now the first American cruise ships are coming. They were filming The Fast and Furious. Um, <laughs> Transformers the movie is slated to be filmed there. There was a Chanel fashion show down the Prado walkway that I, I wrote about, which used to be a slave auction center. Um, there are huge changes just in five years where it's it's a different world. I I had some people after publication write to me to say, you know, can you kind of curate a list of things to do for a couple weeks so I can see the things that you saw? And I was kind of forced to say, like they, they they've been gone now for several years. It's not to say that there isn't some some amazing things for you to go find, but the Cuba that was there in two thousand or two thousand five. Um, that that's long gone, and it's never coming back. Um, even the Malacón, the most famous site in Havana now, I was told has two massive Chinese hotels being built hmm. next to this 400-year-old lighthouse. So forever, if you're trying to film a movie of, of, of Havana, you're going to have to use, use like a green screen or something to technologically remove how ugly – these hotels are going to look next to architecture that's just breathtaking. But, you know, they're trying to help a, an economy that was in freefall for many, many years. It's just it, it has its, its cost on the other side as well that uh, a place that was like no other is, is very rapidly moving to, to be similar to other places in that, you know, there's expectations when American tourists go places that they want a standard of living. And soon enough, you, you know, Americans are going there to beat Americans like them going there. You know, they don't want it to become what Americans will create down there like them. They don't want to see Starbucks. They don't want to see modern cars. They don't want to see holiday inns. But that is also exactly the kind of amenities that they will criticize to the hilt if they're not there. So that that's an interesting dichotomy in itself for me hmm. so i i wonder um so tell me the story of your your first trip to cuba you know, your grandfather had just passed away and he left left some money and your mother asked you you know if you could go anywhere where would you want to go and you just you said cuba and she said well here's the money 
go book your ticket. Like, so what was that experience like? You know, from everything from booking your ticket to getting on the plane to landing in a in a really exotic exotic country. Well, the the first thing that happened that that totally changed it forever. I mean, I have no idea what it would have become. Was meeting meeting somebody who was an antique bookseller on the plane right over, um, who was illegally buying antique books um, along Calle Obispo, the street where Hemingway used to drink and where he wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls and the Ambos Mundos Hotel. Um, there's also this a wonderful selection of stalls of antique books. And he would go there and for pennies on the dollar, buy some first edition and then come back to Toronto where he was living. He was Guatemalan and, and sell it on eBay or sell it wherever he could. And he asked me if I would help buy him drinks after the stewardess cut him off because um, he was just drinking so excessively. He had cirrhosis of the liver at that time, which I didn't know. And um, we kind of struck up a bit of a friendship and he knew uh, – Pan-American silver medalist in the 100-meter dash. And all of the athletes over there know each other because they travel together. They have to live in compounds because so many of them try to defect when they're traveling internationally. And so that that was able to plug me into the Olympic boxing community. So it only took a couple days to secure a, a two-time Olympic champion to train me at boxing. And um, on the other side of it, he as a as an antique bookseller was very up on all things Hemingway over there and he helped arrange a, a meeting with Gregorio Fuentes, the old man in the sea, in Kohimar. He was still living in the same town um, with his I think his grandson who was sort of like the representative to to take the fifteen dollars which was given to the government. So I I couldn't believe that there was a place that you could visit that was not only as beautiful as Havana was, but also offered things like this culturally, um, so so affordably. But I mean, it was just very dreamlike and and surreal that that something like this could be permitted, you know. Um, but it was another another element of of communism, kind of leveling everybody in a, a so called egalitarian society. Um, people aren't kind of walled off. You know, if you, you came to the U.S. and said, hey, I want to get batting lessons from Derek Jeter and I'd like to hang out with Gay Talese to get some pointers on writing, like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a different story in Havana because $6 a day to a two-time Olympic champion is two-week salary that he can use to help out his family. And Gregorio Fuentes welcomed um, celebrating his relationship with Hemingway and felt that Hemingway was a very solid ambassador about Cuban values with the book that he'd written about it based on himself. And um, I, was, I, I was very... It was, it was a definite starting point for me with Cuba about how a society could honor America's most famous writer when it was thought to be a society that was totally opposed to everything that America stood for, how could they embrace this writer and how could Hemingway spend the last 20 years of his life there and give them the Pulitzer Prize and, um, and the Nobel Prize and declare himself a Cuban and use the old man in the sea's boat, the Pilar, as a, a means of, of smuggling explosives in support of Fidel Castro and the revolution. Like I thought, how did Hemingway get a pass from being this, not just a communist sympathizer, but aiding and abetting <laughs> this whole revolution. I mean, he was so vocal about it, but it, Hemingway's also somebody we have to remember that when he wrote for whom the bell tolls, Fidel Castro was reading that to get pointers about guerrilla warfare up in the Sierra Maestra for the two years he was there before he took over the government. And when Obama was running against John McCain, both both of those politicians cited Robert Jordan, the star of For Whom the Bell Tolls, as their f favorite literary hero. So there's some odd symmetry and, and kind of poetry in there about people, I guess, finding some things to cling on to and dismissing others sort of conveniently. But um, all of that just, just really intrigued me. So Alfonso also said um, 
you, know, you guys touched down, and he said meeting a city for the first time at night is like making love to a woman before you've ever spoken with her. And he said, I'm very envious of you tonight. Uh, so what was that like? Did, you know, describe the scene of seeing uh, Havana for the first time you know, with the, the sundown. Yeah, it's, it's, um, Havana is a place that you feel like it just directly is working on your subconscious as you're looking at it. It, it has that, that feeling of a, a nightmare, you know, like in every nightmare, it takes a little while to sort of sort out that everybody is there, understands why they're there except you. And when you understand kind of what's going on suddenly you're like oh i'm in a nightmare and that's usually when you wake up and it feels a bit like the scenery and and the whole apparatus of havana especially at night the the trees and the jungle and and the intensity of the people and it's loud and the music is rumbling um things are literally falling down everywhere all you know the buildings that people are saying oh wow what's such gorgeous architecture post-colonial architecture Cubans are saying it's falling fucking down. It's, it's killing people. <laughs> the roof is caving in. The plumbing doesn't work and on and on. Um, so all of that kind of intensity was, was really overwhelming. But then you find that this nightmare, like the wardrobe of nightmare that the city has, is masking this overwhelming kindness and sense of playfulness um, a huge unbridled sexuality. Um, so there was just such a sense of, of welcome that felt really unearned. Like you just show up and people take you into their lives. If they have no, you know, a few drops of rum in a bottle that's been there for six months, they'll share it with you. And they don't make a point to let you know that they're sharing it with you. It's just, it's just their sense of treating you. I, I guess the best way to distill it is, hearing from some people this proclamation that everybody deserves to have Havana as a hometown, but not hoarding that, not keeping that from people, but sharing that with people, letting them feel that as much as they possibly can. And that's a, that's a very different value system. I mean, I remember distinctly in Vancouver, one of the nicest drives you could have was an area where mansions had been built so that there was no public park or, or space where you could enjoy the view that wealthy people could enjoy. And I, w I remember thinking even as like a kid, do they have that view so that they can enjoy it or do they have it so they can deprive it from everybody else who can't afford it? Yeah. And, and I wonder which was more pleasurable to them. Distinctly, like I just remember feeling like that, like it seems like there's been effort put to prohibit people who can't afford to enjoy this view to enjoy them being off on the sidelines, you know, yeah. and, and Cuba didn't have that feeling with the things, the wonders that Cuba offered, which I think primarily is the people themselves. Um, they're on the hunt to find you and to infect you with, with their sense of enjoyment. And, um, if you bring any kind of knowledge and, and, have put in time to learn the language or to learn the history, um, they're so flattered and thrilled to have discussions. And, and I don't think there's anybody that knows how to throw a better party than Cubans. Mm. And on the other side, people, people who are in a lot of pain tend to be really funny people. So Cubans consequently are very, very funny. Their jokes hurt and people are crying a lot. People have moist eyes. It's a, it's a very easy way to distinguish a Cuban from anybody else who looks similar to them is, is their eyes look very close to tears, whether they're upset or moved by something or whether they're telling a joke that's so funny that you're crying. And all of that kind of intensity of, of emotion was something that was very new to me coming, coming from a place where it seemed like the ultimate social violation was giving people a story to tell you know people would you know what are you doing what are you why are you trying to stand out it was a very provincial bourgeois kind of attitude in vancouver i thought where you know the weather wasn't small talk in vancouver it was a serious discussion and and that was not pleasing to me as somebody you know who more than anything like i'm not interested in landscapes i'm interested in people i'm interested in learning how they work and 
And in Cuba, Cuba covers you, I think, as much as a writer, as, as a photographer, is that it takes genius to take bad photographs in Cuba. It takes <laughs> genius. And I think the same thing is true with telling stories. Find anybody, anybody you run into at random. And I guarantee you, either they or somebody very close to them is living a life completely at the extremes. So how do you write a bad story just simply reporting on what their basic day-to-day existence is and overcoming the quotidian conflicts and, and obstacles of their daily life. Um, so maybe it, it covered a lot of my flaws as a writer to have subjects who were just so colorful and, and leading, leading a life in a place that, that I knew very, very early on that if, you know, I don't have kids, but if I had kids or grandkids, they would never believe that Cuba existed, even if I was told and telling them, you know, the gospel of exactly what I saw. They just couldn't believe that human beings could ever live this way. And that's a, that's a magical way to live just from roosters screaming on the rooftops next door to you to wake you up to, to when you go to sleep at night and everybody's you know dancing or dominoes or music's playing or, or people are holding hands walking outside the door. And people are outside. They're, they're out. They're because their homes are not pleasant places to live in. There's too many people living in each space. So, um, you know, I learned Spanish mostly from watching the, the Brazilian telenovelas that would shut down the city. But often I felt like these people were, were learning their lives from telenovelas. I mean, every, every story I encountered was a kind of telenovela script plot line of, of extremity. So, all that stuff all that stuff was just uh i mean it it took me years to be able to synthesize it from journals and just my own ruminations into something that would approach uh, like a a story to tell you know yeah and it's alluding to the 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 cuban yeah the cubans how they're they always look like they're close to tears i i pulled that line right out of the book it's on, on i have the hardcover edition so it's on page 68 it's um Cuban's eyes often look close to tears. Tears never seem far away because both their pain and their joy are always so close to the surface. And I almost felt like wow, like that's uh that's like a killer opening line to uh but I think it opens a chapter, or at least opens a, a a page break. And it's like what it's just like that just throws the hammer down right away and it I think that sums up hey, if you had to sum up your experience in one sentence, that that seems as close to as close to it as possible. I agree. And, and I think the counterpoint to it was, um, reflecting on the Cuban. I mean, that seems like a tragic condition to be in. I think many people would agree, but from where I came from, there was a certain despair. I forgot who had the quote that most people live lives of quiet desperation. I think it's um, Thoreau. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds right. And, and I think that that was Vancouver to me. Like the streets where I walked and the people I saw just made me increasingly feel numb. And to be with people who were feeling, being moved to tears by joy or by sadness, at least they were feeling things. And it doesn't mean I'm advocating a system that creates that kind of dynamic. Yeah. But it, it seemed, just from a humanist perspective, to be pretty vital to our existence and, and not an accident that so many people in our culture are medicated um, so heavily just to deal with and regulate their, their emotions. You know, they're, we're, we're scared to feel anything in this society, anything you feel I guarantee there's a medication to deal with it. If it makes <laughs> you uncomfortable and Cuba makes you very uncomfortable. If you're not drunk, if you're not banging, you know, women, <laughs> you know, prostitutes who are there, if you're not touring cigar factories, if you're not doing the Hemingway tour, but you're actually, um, Walking the you know ninety nine percent of Havana still, which is amazing, is pretty much untouched from what you see in every other every other major city in the world, where they all sort of become and aspire to be the same cliche. They're not just cliches; they aspire to the cliche. And ninety nine percent of Havana still is is itself. And I found I found that just to be very overwhelming. Um, and and a, a really interesting glimpse into what America was. There was so so much symmetry there into 
you know, what was Brooklyn in the 1950s that people go on and on about just how magical a time it was. Well, that's long dead and that will never come back in this country. But it was alive and well there. This conservative American wet dream um, was all over the place. And I just thought, oh, isn't it interesting that Americans are so afraid of this for, for various reasons or their government won't allow them to go see it. Um, but if they did, I, I think it would be such a throwback to stories that have been told to them by their grandparents. And it might open them up about why have they been told to avoid this? You know, what? Maybe there is some value in some of the things that are here, correctives that are here, which is what I think brought Hemingway there. Is I think Hemingway very much was this Huckleberry Finn who wanted a river to fish in that was his. And that was long dead in his own country, but it was alive and, and, and thriving in Cuba for a long time, despite a lot of other problems going on. Um, I think that was a big part of why somebody who had the choice to live anywhere in the world chose there. It, it didn't surprise me for a second after spending a day there why he would choose it. Uh, speaking, speaking of Hemingway, uh, aside from the Nick Adams stories, I, uh, for someone who's such a titanic American writer... Did he even write a novel that was set in America? Uh, did he write a novel that was set in America? I guess uh, to have and have not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The Florida, the Florida Keys. Yeah. With the but again smuggling over to Cuba and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that's the only one I can think of. You're you're, but I think I think you're right to say the Nick Adams stories are all about kind of looking back in the past at small towns that have literally been burnt down you know, going back into this past and him always wondering, was it there in the first place? That's, mm. That seems to be the magic of those stories is this almost radical ambivalence about can we trust memory in relation to our nostalgia? Um, it's definitely what makes those stories endure for me. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and, and that's a big part of Cuba too is people always talking, looking back in the rear view and a younger generation saying, fuck that, like, let's look ahead. Like this, this past that you're always talking about wasn't there. And I think you're seeing that also on the other side of the 90 miles with a lot of the, the books written by the exile community kind of waxing poetic about the paradise that Cuba was. And a lot of people who are still there saying, fuck you, it wasn't a paradise. <laughs> I think this revolution happened. It's because of how unfair things were. And uh, it's the the book too is so uh, inquisitive in nature, and uh, that comes, I uh, right right from the opening opening sentence. You know, you say maybe the real subject of every interview is how you really can't learn much about anyone from an interview, and throughout much of it, it's you you pepper a lot of people with questions, and it it you're that conduit to get us into this culture, and um, despite. Despite you coming out and saying that that first sentence, it still doesn't keep you from trying and earning the interview from um, earning the interview from trying to learn to try to learn something. So I, I wonder what are you still trying to accomplish if you admit you can't learn much about anyone by by interviewing them routinely? Well, I think that can be balanced off also by I don't think anybody can give their phone number without giving away a lot of who they are. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what people, you know, where do you learn more about somebody from what they're trying to sell you on about what their narrative is and who they are or by what they're trying to conceal from you? You know, who, who don't they want you to think that they are? Who, what are the narratives that they've noticed they've acquired that they don't like that they're trying to shuck and doing everything they can to tr try to reinvent themselves? I mean, America is famous for being you know, the first place in centuries where you could come to reinvent yourself, be, be Gatsby and, and that kind of thing. I mean, that's the, the magic of, of what I think the American dream promised was this idea of reinvention and, and the ideal of a, a meritocracy where you could rise up despite where you came from and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I just think that I always kind of viewed people not as riddles or crossword puzzles, but as poetry. And, and poetry is something that changes every time you return to it. You notice how it's changed, and in the process, you notice how you've changed. And I like, I like exploring that and not really exploring it with the intention of, um, I don't know, trying to fleece it of its complexity or its ambiguity. 
And and so yeah, I mean, I like I like conversing with people. I don't I don't know if it gets to the bottom of anything particularly, but I I think it's maybe it's just a dynamic I've always had and just just existentially I kind of feel like existence is a bit like being in Grand Central Station. There's a bunch of people around you. You're not sure what people, you know, they, they have tickets about where they're going. You don't know which ones have the same ticket as you <laughs> and are get on the same train. Most people are not. Um, I like talking to strangers and uh, I think that's a big part of this book is, is everybody I met over there was a, a complete stranger that led me to more strangers. But sometimes you meet strangers who it's it's as if you've known them an awful long time and you can be a lot more candid and open with them than you could with people who are in your inner circle of trust or your family so uh that 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 dynamic i I guess there's an element of displacement in that I, i i didn't i had a lot of issues with where i was born and 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 family and and community and social connections and it didn't fit very well where I came from, so I, I sought to find surrogates elsewhere. And and Cuba is, a, I guess, a strange place to find it, but um, I did find a lot of those things. Or if I didn't find it, I guess I found a place where those, those human connections were more valuable than anywhere else that I've been. And maybe it's it's sort of parallel to what Oscar Wilde said that, you know, if you're starving, go to a place where the food is the best. And if I was emotionally starving from the family and social stuff, Cuba was definitely a place where I'd never seen families have more purchase in a society or friendship, um, or a sense of community or a sense of patriotism, um, rallying around principles of, of common struggle. So, I I just found that a a very vibrant intense kind of ethos to exist in that that moved me you know I just found the right music to to you know the right soundtrack to accompany my own film you know of of life um where I, I you know I felt like I could move to it finally I I couldn't where I came from nothing fit so uh, that, that was, it's, it's hard not to feel a great deal of gratitude and generosity to a place that offers that to you, especially when you're, you're not from it. Um, I wasn't trying to go native with it. I was never trying to, you know, I was very much still an outsider, but, um, I sure, I just sure enjoyed those moments and wanted to savor them for as long as they were there because I knew Cuba as, as I encountered it was not going to last for very long. So what was it like for you like with every essentially every question you asked was in a lot of ways committing a sort of Cuban suicide for you because you were going up the ladder of people who if you asked them or got caught interviewing them it was going to lead to your either like banishment from the country or worse maybe getting arrested and thrown in prison especially as you're trying to approach like Teofilo Stevenson and and these high high profile athletes um it's almost like you the very inquisitive nature that you that you have was also going to be your cuban undoing so so what what was that like for you as uh you know as you kind of like lit the fuse of your own sort of your own bomb there um by asking these questions i guess i guess i wanted to get deeper i wanted to you know get get to the kind of fulcrum of how this how this insane revolution functioned and i guess the unique angle that i i wanted on it was that i'd heard how both sides of the 90 miles had weighed in about the issue but i hadn't talked i hadn't heard in a setting that was more informal and natural how these people felt themselves and and what were the how did they live? You know, what, what was it when they weren't on camera or behind a microphone, but just with you in their living room? You know, what, what was it like just to see them interact where TV cameras weren't following them? I wanted to see behind the curtain. And I think I just increasingly got addicted to that pursuit. And, um, 
you know, in, in, in the process, got a few other people behind me who would financially support that endeavor where I had obligations to, to, to not let everything collapse, but I had to go further and further and, and pull it off. I mean, in, in a weird way, I guess kind of like Santiago with the big fish, you know, like you, you want the big one, but it, it definitely has the risk of um, causing a lot of problems that you're way out into deep waters where you don't know how to deal with it. And I certainly didn't want to get arrested. I certainly didn't want to get put in prison for the perception that I was trying to lure athletes off the island. Um, I was meeting people who were doing that um, outside of Cuba who'd gone there to secure Cuban athletes for very little money to get them into smugglers boats and that kind of thing, taken to Mexico, held hostage until ransoms were paid and that kind of thing. It just seemed like this, these, these stories hadn't been told much and it was just such a, an insane world to enter into um, and try to engender trust with the people to tell their stories. And I think part of it was just that they didn't know what the hell my angle was. And I wasn't sure particularly either. I just <laughs> wanted to um, just listen to people, give them an opportunity to talk. Um, and then I guess the only way to, to go further was to start recording it you know, with, with a camera or, or with a notepad. And that does up the stakes because the Cuban state certainly wants control over the narrative of where their, their highest profile athletes stand. Um, and anything that clashes with that narrative, they will try to suppress by any means that they have at their disposal. So it becomes a scary society when literally on every block is a spy agency called the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution where any non-revolutionary activity is reported. And I would hear stories of even petty violence of a tourist having a camera stolen could result in like a quarantined area of 10 square blocks where you know the army would come in and go door to door until they found the assailant. So where athletes were concerned or, or any kind of, um, you know, spokesman against the revolution or, you know, anything quote unquote counter revolutionary. I just met many reporters who were doing a lot less than I was in, in trying to secure interviews, be deported immediately. Hmm. And so there's always a bit of dread that you're going to get that knock at two or three in the morning and be escorted to the airport and be blacklisted to ever come back. Or, or be arrested while you're doing these interviews because there are very clearly defined channels um, officially to secure these things. And I had no standing in terms of working for a, a legit publication or TV network or something to make, it, to make it at all reasonable for them to agree for me to do it. So I just went sort of through the back door everywhere I could and never knew if it would work, never knew – what obstacles were there because I mean you don't you don't know when you've kicked over the hornet's nest over there mm. until until they're all on you. Yeah. So I think maybe it was a combination of having been there for many years where I didn't stir up any trouble to then really expeditiously going after the biggest names I possibly could um with with some intimate knowledge of people who knew them um acting as liaisons to create it. So I, I, I don't know what the calculus was to allow me to get away with it, to get away with, you know, footage that could immediately be put on the front page of the Miami Herald because they saw the value of it in terms of ammunition against the revolution, which was certainly not my agenda at all. Um, I, w I was trying to offer a more nuanced portrait of these people who I felt were caught in the crossfire of both societies. So where does that... Uh, the fearlessness to tell these kinds of stories come from? Because uh, you weren't afraid to go into heavy credit card debt to finance your projects. Um, you know, there's totally a story that you deeply believed in. Uh, so I wonder where, where do you think that fearlessness to confront this stuff comes from? Well, I think it's more desperation than fearlessness. <laughs> I mean, the credit card thing is kind of a similar thing to the access in Cuba is that 
I had immaculate credit. I mean, I never made any money, but I had immaculate credit until I went $50,000 in debt. I'd never missed a credit card payment. And then it was like, do you stop? Do you just stop cold or do you go all in? And at that point, you know, I had a few of those decisions with this. You know, I had camera equipment stolen when a Cuban was fighting. I I had no way to go forward, so I bet everything I had at 20 to 1 that he'd knock the guy out in the first round and got lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, going in with uh, the Irishman who signed a number of Cubans and was the first one to get them off the island, um, for him to agree to tell his story, he said, um, I'm going to Tijuana to watch one of these fighters fight. If If you want to come with me, the risks are that the Miami mafia that works with the Mexican mafia in this human smuggling operation have told me explicitly, we will kidnap you, we will get a hitman to murder you, or we will get the police to frame you with drugs when they arrest you if you come, if you come across the border. And he took the threat so seriously – well, I should say his security team took the threat so seriously that they said, we will not go with you to Tijuana <laughs> right now, which at the time had as many murders as, as Iraq. Um, mm. So he said, if, if you want to go with me, my whole family is all in tears begging me not to go, but, but fuck them. I'm not letting them push me around. So if you come along with me, I'll get you this fighter to, to – I'll give you a full access to him. You can get in the ring with him in Tijuana. You can interview him before the fight, after the fight, and I'll tell you my whole story. And I just, you know, it's just one of those decisions you make. Do you want to, are you, are you content with the life that you have or do you want a passport into the life that you want? And there's risk, but the desperation or the unhappiness I had with where I was at was enough incentive to take that risk. And I got lucky and same with the credit card debt is I just thought, you know what can they what can they really do to me? Okay, my credit's ruined, but what if what if I succeed with this and I get to I get to be a writer? I get to have a story that's worth telling that can find me um, a place like Random House and and Macmillan um, jousting with each other to secure a book deal with me to tell the story. You know, I I understood that I had to lead a life that was worth writing about that would capture these people's interest and. Um, I never went through the conventional channels of an MFA program at Columbia or something to just be like a draft pick. Um, I had to find a way in that was more unconventional. And uh, I, I really just see it as desperation. And, 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 you know, occasionally you know the important moments in your life while they're happening. Most of the time you don't. But based on that, you can make you know, the best decision you can about whether the risk is worth it. And, um, I just kind of felt, what do I have to lose? And I don't think that ever bespeaks courage or bravery. It's always desperation, you know? And, uh, would you say the risk was, uh, was worth it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, would I be saying that if I was in a Cuban prison right now? (laughs) Um, would I be saying that if I was stuck in Canada with a $50,000 debt and, and no ability to write the book because I couldn't get those interviews? Would I be saying it if I couldn't have finished the documentary um, because he didn't knock him out in the first round? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'd probably be a baby about it and be like, no, I should have done the responsible you know, <laughs> common sense thing. But I didn't, I didn't want that life. You know, and, and I feel like to gain access to the people who are your heroes on some level, you have to take some, some gambles that impress them enough to want to, you know, allow you into the conversation where, where they'll treat you as somebody worthy of just having a straight conversation. It's not just the vertical, oh, you're my mentor, you're my hero, but actually have real conversations. And so I tried to, tried to here and there, take some long odds on and, and create something that might, might be worthy of, um, you know, that, that's my big thing is to get, to get access to the people who inspired me and to do something worthy of, of them so that they, they are inspired to, you know, 
start a correspondence with me so I can learn more about them. And I've been very fortunate that most of them, I've been able to do that. Well, I think I, I speak for untold thousands of people by saying, like, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the risk so we get a chance to read your work and you continue to do the work you do and you're only going to get better and better as uh, as you keep keep doing what you do because uh, it's truly a pleasure anytime I get to see the Bryn Jonathan Butler byline and I, I know I'm I and untold thousands are in for a wonderful reading experience at at the hands of your uh, you know at the hands of your talent so I think this is a, a wonderful point to end on and I just want to thank you again for coming on the show um, the book is The Domino Diaries, My Decade Boxing with Olympic Champions and Chasing Hemingway's Ghost in the Last Days of Castro's Cuba. Thank you again, Bryn. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Yeah, always a pleasure, and we'll be in touch. Take care, man. You too.